You have reached Road Talk, Navigating Your Journey, a ministry and podcast of the Discover Young Adults Ministry at the Preston Crest Church of Christ in Dallas, Texas. We meet at 945 on Sunday mornings, and we have small groups all throughout the week. We are located at Preston Road and Highway 635 in North Dallas. My name is Jacob Hawk. I'm the Young Adults Minister and the host of this podcast. It doesn't matter if you are single, dating, if you want to be dating, if you're married, if you want to be married, or if you're divorced, or if you're trying to figure out at what stage of life you are passing through. At the Discover Young Adults Ministry, we want to help you discover life, discover love, and discover the Lord. If I can help you or serve you in any way, or if I can pray for you, please email me at jacob at pressandcrest.org. Well, I want to welcome you back to Road Talk, Navigating Your Journey today. It's been a while since we were able to record another episode. We've had a lot going on in our family, a death of a grandmother and a mother, and just uh, the boys were here for spring break, so it's been a busy time. I've been finishing up some work for school for my doctoral program, and today's the first time that we can just slow down for a minute and finish this series on restoration. I'm glad to have my dad back with me today. Dad, glad that you're with us. Glad to be back. We've been spending several weeks talking about this concept of restoration, and Dad, since it has been several weeks since we've touched on this topic, one more time for those who may not have listened to the previous episodes, what is New Testament restoration? Well, Jacob, simply speaking, it was an effort and is an effort to restore New Testament Christianity. It's a plea to be the church that you read about in the New Testament. Restoration history, as we refer to it, is basically the history of the churches of Christ in America. It began late 1700s, just Oh, 15, 20 years after the signing of the founding documents of our nation. And it was a, a movement, a, a plea, uh, a passion to go back to New Testament Christianity. And there were four big movements, as we've talked about throughout this series, that kind of helped drive the Restoration Movement. Some of them were not aware of each other. Um, but there were two movements of those four movements that eventually combined. Is that correct? That's correct. None of them were aware of each other as they began, and that's one of the real interesting things about it, is that they all had a very similar idea and started uh, preaching and talking and writing uh, about this plea within a 20-year period of one another of, let's go back to the Bible. And that's what's really interesting. They were independent of each other, no knowledge of each other. But you're right, there were four major movements. You had James O'Kelly, you had the New England movement, we refer to it, which was Abner Jones and Elias Smith. But the two prevalent movements were the Stone Movement, which was Barton W. Stone, the Campbell Movement, which was Thomas Campbell and Alexander Campbell, father and son. Alexander Campbell became the major leader, the the focal leader in that movement. And uh, those are the two that, that we really uh, referred to, they were the most influential, and they had the most to do with, really, 
the thinking of the world when it comes to restoration. Um, they, they actually merge together. They converge, and you'll hear and read and see often things referring to the Stone Campbell movement. And that's because the two movements really achieved unity. And there's a term that kind of goes down in history, and it's tossed around still some today, but it's the term, the, the right hand of fellowship. Uh, talk with us a little bit about that term and how it related to the Stone-Campbell movement. Well, the Stone-Campbell movement, as I said, they had a lot of similarities, and they began to realize that they had a lot of similarities. Now, they had some differences. They had some different opinions, but the similarities far outweighed uh, their differences. And so in 1830, leaders of both groups began considering the possibility of unity. And uh, as the restoration group spread through the same areas of the country, it was inevitable that there were going to be contacts between the two of them. The Stone Movement was strongest in Kentucky. Alexander Campbell uh, he was up in West Virginia, in Virginia, but he went down to Kentucky. The first visit he made to Kentucky was in 1823. Alexander Stone, uh, Alexander Campbell, I'm sorry, was a great debater, among other things. He was an editor. He was a Christian college president, uh, but he was a preacher. He was a debater. And he went down into Kentucky uh, to conduct this debate in 1823, and he was received so cordially, he actually stayed three months. And he made a three-month tour of the state. Uh, he went back, and he did the same thing a year later. He visited Georgetown, and at that time, uh, Martin W. Stone was there. And they met for the first time. They spent a lot of time visiting, uh, studying Scripture together, and they very quickly saw the similarity in their pleas for New Testament Christianity. Some of their similarities were these, and this is not a complete list, but just real quickly, both, Stam both Stone and Campbell accepted the Scripture as the sole authority for Christian faith. They denied that creedal statements uh, that were written by man or imposed by the denominational world that they should not be bound on the church. They both pleaded for Christian unity on the basis of a return to the Bible. Uh, Barton Stone, 1831, he wrote this. He said, for nearly 30 years, we have taught that sectarianism was anti-Christian and that all Christians should be united in the body of Christ. The same they teach, he said, the they referring to Campbell. Uh, both of them, Stone and Campbell, had reacted strongly against the Calvinistic theology. Uh, they denied such doctrines as predestination, limited atonement. Instead, they believed the gospel uh, was offered and should be preached to all people, and anyone could obey it. Both Stone and Campbell rejected infant sprinkling, and they preached the immersion of all believers. Both taught that there was some relation between baptism, forgiveness of sins. They didn't agree exactly on this point, but both of them saw baptism as being uh, the, the spot Scripture talks about forgiveness of sins being given. Uh, both of them refused to wear unscriptural 
or sectarian names, and both of them regarded denominational organizations such as presbyteries, synods, associations, and such like as being uh, unscriptural. So these were some of their major uh, similarities. Again, they had some differences, but they had a whole lot more they agreed on than what they disagreed on. So in 1831, Martin Stone wrote this. He said, the question is going the round of society and is often proposed to us. Why are you not united? Talking about uh, Stone and Campbell. Stone went on to say, we have uniformly answered in spirit, we are united. Campbell, during the same time, he wrote this statement. He said, I think the question of union and cooperation is one which deserves the attention of all them who believe the ancient gospel and desire to see the ancient order of things restored. So what happens? Well, both movements stress the autonomy of each local church, and so any kind of unity is going to have to be a gradual thing. There's no uh, ecclesiastical setup, no organization, no structure that would allow uh, a date to be uh, a formal date for everybody uh, uniting together. The only way it's going to be realized is for local congregations, local communities of the two groups to extend fellowship one to the other or to merge. The first such merger we have recorded is in Millersburg, Kentucky, April 24, 1831. In Millersburg, Kentucky that day, they agreed that they were one as far as faith and practice was concerned, and they simply began meeting together as one congregation. Well, other congregations started doing the same thing in other communities until finally in Lexington, Kentucky, over a New Year's weekend, 1832, a meeting was held with preachers from both movements present. Uh, Martin W. Stone was there. Alexander Campbell was not there, but Raccoon John Smith, which, by the way, is a very interesting uh, pioneer preacher to study about, but he was uh, very influential in the Campbell movement. Raccoon John Smith was there in Lexington, Kentucky. He was the spokesman for the Campbell movement. And after pleading for unity, here's what Raccoon John Smith said. He said, let us then, my brethren, be no longer Campbellites or Stoneites, new lights or old lights, or any other kind of lights, but let us come to the Bible, and to the Bible alone is the only book in the world that can give us all the light that we need. And on this basis, Raccoon John Smith and Barton W. Stone exchanged the right hand of fellowship. Now you ask the question, why is that important? And I don't know that I have all the answers to that, but it was an action symbolizing the uniting of the two groups. And I believe that it went back to uh, Galatians chapter 2 when Paul, the Apostle Paul, who was questioned for obvious reasons because Saul of Tarsus is his former life. He had been persecuting Christians. People didn't know exactly how to feel about Paul. Barnabas took Paul and they went to Jerusalem. And Paul records that Peter, James, and John that were considered pillars in the faith, that they extended the right hand of fellowship to, to me and to Barnabas is what Paul records. And so I think this was a symbolic act 
uh, remembering when uh, Peter, James, and John, all the Jerusalem folks extended and welcomed the Apostle Paul into uh, the fellowship and recognized him as a strong worker for the Lord. But anyway, this is a, a very important moment in the Restoration period when uh, the Stone and Campbell movements came together. That's a great summary of it. And again, symbolic language where people who have the same desire, though they have different backgrounds, the same desire to come and to find a unified approach to reading Scripture and organizing the church, they realize they have more things in common than they do in difference, and they decide to come together with the same purpose and same mission, which obviously is still a goal of restoration theology today, is to find more agreement than disagreement and to have a standard that we can all uh, live by. Now, we're going to finish up here in just a moment talking about kind of the final result of the American Restoration Movement, which is still an ongoing movement today. By no means has it ever ended. We still want to continue the process of going back to the Bible. Uh, but Dad, through this series, you've given us a lot of history. This kind of begins before the Revolutionary War, continues through the Revolutionary War, um, but it also faces another war, just like American history faces, and that's the Civil War. Very briefly, can you give us just a few high points how the Civil War did affect the Restoration Movement? Yes, I'll try to, Jacob. Now, early studies in Restoration, and when I'm saying early, it's early for me, the teachers, the professors, what they would say, the Civil War really didn't have an effect on the Restoration Movement like it did other movements, but it did, and uh, the thought on that seemed to change considerably uh, back in the uh, 1970s, 1980s. And I said in the first session that where I really got interested in Restoration histories when I was a student many years ago, and my instructor was Bill Humble who probably did as much studying and still regarded today as probably the best scholar or one of the best scholars among our brotherhood, at least, of the Restoration. And Humble did a lot of study on this, and I think he's right. There was a tremendous effect uh, on the Restoration movement, on the church, by the Civil War. Now, before I get to that, let me stress that after uh, the right hand of fellowship was extended back in Lexington, Kentucky in 1832. It was about a 10-year period of time where there was significant growth in the combined movement. And during the 1830s, uh, more and more of the congregations were merging together. But unfortunately, and you know, I've really enjoyed being with you, and we're not—we're going to close out today, but we're in no way this, this is a complete study of the Restoration. But what we're going to talk about from this point on is a sad story. I think up until now has been a real exciting time uh, of, uh, of a plea and people uh, discovering that others had the same idea and this passion, let's go back to the Bible like we should and let it be. Uh, the role for the church and our blueprint, our pattern. Unfortunately, after the decade of growth for the first 10 years after uh, Lexington, Kentucky, there came a 
period of time, a decade of opposition that started out uh, the biggest problem that appeared. There's two things that have always been uh, traditionally talked about is the things that the restoration movement divided over. And the first one was the missionary society. And that definitely created a lot of stress. Uh, the American Christian Missionary Society was formed. This was a, a effort to uh, combine funds and combine leadership and to try to do more and more missionary work, not only in our country, but in foreign countries. And it was started, but it was started with a lot of opposition when it was created. Some of the objections to the Missionary Society were this. Number one was paid membership. Uh, there was a charge for you to be a member of the American Christian Missionary Society, which came out of the Restoration Movement. Uh, those that wanted to criticize this, they would, as one man wrote, he said, uh, Peter and John couldn't even be a member of the Missionary Society if they were alive because when they were asked by the man, uh, the crippled man to give him something, to give him something. Their statement was, silver and gold have I none, but what I have I'll give to you. So said, see there, they couldn't even join uh, the missionary society. They didn't have any money. Well, that was one of the things they argued about. The key issue, the key issue was it was unscriptural. Uh, those that opposed it said, we can't find any book, chapter, verse, any example in the New Testament of a missionary society. And they saw it as a departure from the restoration principle. They said it was an ecclesiastical or denominational organization. Now, I'm not sure that it was ever a denominational organization, but it had the, the it laid the groundwork for one. And you got to remember these people were coming out of the denominational world and they feared anything that looked like it, smelled like it, felt like it, and this just didn't feel right to them. And so there were a lot of objections, and this was the first, uh, whatever you want to call it, this was the first point that started creating division in the Restoration Movement. Now, the Missionary Society, I really believe, and as I've studied and others believe this, it probably could have been worked out. They might could have uh, spent time uh, tweaking it and massaging it and getting it to where it, it would have been a tool that could have been used had it not been for the Civil War. But the Civil War came in and did have a major impact on it. The Civil War obviously had a tragic impact on everything in America. Religion uh, was not exempt from that. In fact, uh, if you look at the denominational world, the Baptists divided during the Civil War. That's where the Southern Baptist Convention, when it was formed. Methodists, they divided and stayed divided until 1939, when the United Methodists finally got back together. The Presbyterians divided. They're still divided over it. The Civil War... As I said, a lot of historians say it didn't have much effect on the Restoration Movement, but it did. We didn't divide again because we weren't structured the way the denominationals, denominations were structured. We didn't have any hierarchy to make the decision to officially uh, divide or to split, but it did divide us. 
in a lot of ways. Geographically, the restoration movement was very strong in the border states. And, of course, that brought a lot of stress and a lot of tension. Some examples. Tolbert Fanning was a very, very influential individual in the restoration movement. He was the founding editor of the Gospel Advocate. Gospel Advocate, still in existence today, published out of Nashville, Tennessee. But it was probably the most widely read periodical among brethren at that time, uh, maybe even a little more than Alexander Campbell's uh, writings had been. But it was very, very influential throughout, particularly the South. Fanning had two ideas and two thoughts about the Civil War. He said, and this is a quote of Talbert Fanning, he said, both sides read the same Bible, pray the same prayer to the same God. And he said, God cannot answer all of these prayers. Secondly, he said, it may be that the war is a God-sent test for his people. Now, what's interesting about these two quotations from Talbert Fanning is that Abraham Lincoln used both of these same statements in his second inaugural address. Fanning had made them several years earlier in the Gospel Advocate. Uh, I think that kind of helps us see how much influence he was having with the Advocate that somewhere Lincoln obviously picked up on them. Now, historians also uh, believe and some claim that Abraham Lincoln's mother uh, was involved in the Restoration Movement in a member of a Stone Campbell church. Hmm. Uh, and so that would have influenced uh, Lincoln as well. But at the same time, Talbert Fanning is encouraging Christians in the South not to go to war. Another uh, very influential uh, fella in the Restoration Movement and one that whose name became very famous because he became president of the United States later, James Garfield. James Garfield was one of our preachers, and he, at the same time Fanning was encouraging the Southerners not to go to war, he was standing on the church house steps of churches throughout the North recruiting the young men to enlist in the Union Army. Also, getting back to the Missionary Society, the American Christian Missionary Society passed a pro-Union, in other words, supporting the North, resolution, <coughs> which created even more opposition to the Missionary Society from the churches in the South. And I think had that not been done, possibly the Missionary Society could have been worked out among mm -hmm. brethren, but that was pretty much the nail in the coffin for the Missionary Society in the South. The Civil War shattered any sense of brotherhood between northern and southern churches, and it was so deep that they never could be called one people in any, one, any meaningful sense from that point on. Doesn't mean now that Civil War was what was responsible uh, for the division among the Restoration Movement, but it does mean it had an effect. Even before the war, the Southerners had accepted a stricter view of the Restoration Principle, which had led them to initially oppose the Missionary Society. But the division didn't come until the Civil War. Bitterness destroyed the atmosphere of goodwill in which the doctrinal differences between North and South might have been able to have been discussed, 
might have been able to have been resolved. So that's kind of what happened, Jacob, with the Civil War, along with the Christian Missionary Society. Very similar to today, we're obviously not engaged in a physical civil war, but the civil war of our times of culture, uh, politics in one way or another does get into the church, and it's difficult on the church when that happens. Um, had a discussion with a good friend recently who, uh, we were talking about politics and the church, and the concept that the church should avoid politics altogether is kind of a crazy concept because we live in a world of politics uh, but maybe the thing to avoid more than politics is to avoid to avoid partisanship because um, you see the divide that it can cause in churches when there's a divide in the country but anyway the the church survives through the civil war and after the civil war what we're going to talk about now is there's three different major religious bodies that come out of it Really, before we get to that, though, Jacob, the, the biggest uh, factor which crawls division, and there are three distinct groups that come out of the Restoration Movement, but the reason that they have divided it was missionary society, civil war influence, but really the big one was the instrumental music controversy. Uh, this was, and... Uh, today seems to be popping back up again, a major, major issue among uh, the Restoration Movement and the plea of taking the New Testament as our sole authority. So as I go into that, let me make mention that there's really two approaches to talking about the instrumental music controversy. First one would be doctrinal. I'm not going to go into that today. We don't have time for it, number one. But I will just say at the outset that uh, me personally, I'm very comfortable with the doctrinal position that uh, we use when it comes to using instruments of music in worship. Uh, I think theologically, scripturally, I think we are on solid ground as when we look at uh, New Testament church that they did not use uh, instruments of music in their worship. It was singing. And that's what was commanded. So that's the doctrinal side. I'm not going to go into that right now because we're looking at history, restoration history. The historical approach is what I want to talk about here as we uh, look to see uh, the way those who had the plea for restoration movement, a New Testament pattern, where they went. Instrumental music was not used or its use even discussed in the early days of the Restoration Movement. The first discussion that we can find uh, when we go back and look at history, where it was ever brought up, was in 1851. In 1851, and as I said, there's all kinds of preachers who became editors, and there were all kinds of periodicals. It was a time before internet, before television, before radio, so they were using uh, the written documents and mailing them out. Uh, there was a small uh, periodical referred to re called the Ecclesiastical Reformer. J.B. Henshaw was the editor. A reader wrote in to J.B. Henshaw in 1851 and asked whether instrumental music might be used in worship to add solemnity to worship. That was the question. 
Henshaw's response was against instrumental music, but he forwarded the question over to Alexander Campbell. Alexander Campbell uh, had a much wider read uh, publication, and people looked to Campbell to answer a lot of questions, and so Henshaw forwarded this question over to Campbell. Campbell's answer was very brief and very blunt. Now, what's interesting about this is if you, Jacob, if you, and I'm sure you have, but if you ever go back and want to study or take any uh, quotations or read Alexander Campbell's writings, Alexander Campbell was not brief on anything. He loved words. He, he was a great uh, student of language, of uh, English, Greek, and uh, Hebrew, and he knew a lot of words, and he liked to use them. But on this particular question, this is all he had to say. He wrote one statement. It's a quotation. Alexander Campbell stated that if churches had no real devotion or spirituality in them, instrumental music might be an essential prerequisite to devotion. But then he went on and added, he said, but to all spiritually-minded Christians, such age would be as a cowbell in a concert. Hmm. Cowbell in a concert. Now, what's interesting about that is after Campbell stated that, wrote that, published that, the question of instrumental music was not even discussed, wasn't brought up for 10 years. That's the influence of Alexander Campbell. What that means then is that during the entire lifespan of Martin W. Stone, Thomas Campbell, Alexander Campbell, Walter Scott, Raccoon John Smith, all these men that we've talked about, instrumental music was never an issue. They were dead and gone before it ever uh, came back up. As far as known, the first congregation among the Restoration Movement to introduce instrumental music into the worship was in Midway, Kentucky, church around 1860. Dr. L.L. L. Pinkerton was a medical doctor and a preacher. He referred to himself in his writings as one of the earliest liberals in the Brotherhood. What did he do? He brought in a small melodeon, little instrument, and they began using it in worship. Why? Well, when asked about it, he said, bad singing. In fact, this is his quotation. Pinkerton said the singing was so bad that it would even scare the rats from worship. That's pretty bad. Scare the rats out of the church house. When asked about biblical authority, somebody, and he was asked, and said, Dr. Pinkerton, do we have an example for this in Scripture? It's pretty interesting what Pinkerton said. It's a quotation. He said, with respect to instrumental music, I presume that no one at all acquainted with ecclesiastical history would even pretend to claim for its introduction in the church of a, that there's any pretense of primitive authority or warrant. We confess a fondness for good music of all kinds and find it no offense to our own feelings of piety or praise to hear the grand and majestic swell of the organ rolling forth laden with the strains of sacred music. So what he was saying was nobody uh, that has any 
knowledge whatsoever of Scripture will claim there's any authority for instrumental music. But he said, we've got to find this for it. And so that began a problem and a big uh, cause for division in the restoration principle and in the restoration movement because basically Pinkerton put restoration on the back burner and said, I'm going to go with what I have a fondness for and what my feelings and desires are. And so that started a downward spiral in some of the saddest history in the restoration movement. What happened? How did he introduce it? I think it's, you know, we learn from history. A lot of people learn from history. How did Pilkerton introduce it? Well, it's on Saturday night. He said, let's start using the melodeon on Saturday night for those who want to practice the songs. Well, before long, the group enjoyed the effect of the instrument so much it was decided to move it to Sunday morning worship. That sounds familiar. That's what some churches have done within recent years, is that's the same pattern that they were used, that they have used. Say, so, well, was there opposition? Yeah, there was opposition. In fact, in Midway, Kentucky, late one night, one of the elders of that church, his name was Adam Hibner, he took one of his slaves. He was a slave owner. The slave's name was Reuben. And this elder took Reuben down to the church late at night, lifted him through. He forgot to bring a key. So he crawled through a window of the church. And Reuben stole the melodeon out of the church. And they hid it in Hibner's barn. He never did confess for a long time that he had it. And they went and bought another melodeon and put it back in its place. And it brought in uh, instrumental music to that congregation. And from Midway, Kentucky, from Midway, Kentucky, you started having the instrument uh, inserted and brought in uh, to congregations around the country. I got a couple of quotes, if I can read them to you. We got time to do this. I hope we do. I think it's important to hear uh, the effect that it's having. This is a quotation from the Springfield, Missouri daily newspaper. This is not a periodical that was published by one of our preachers. This is the local paper, Springfield, Missouri, January 31st, 1887. This is what they record, what the reporter said. Said for several weeks, a warm and at times acrimonious warfare has been waged in the Christian church of this city. Remember at this time, Christian church, churches of Christ, there was a term used interchangeably. He said there was this uh, problem in the Christian church to this city between those who oppose the musical instrument in public worship and between those who favor the organ. Yesterday, affairs were brought to a crisis, and there were some sensational scenes. After the preacher, E.G. McLaughlin, had read the opening hymn, the organist began playing, and many joined in the singing. But at the same time, the opponents of the organ started up another song, and pandemonium pursued. The Lord's Supper was announced. Brother Rogers rose, said he'd rather not partake with the organ people. After the Lord's Supper, an anti-organ brother arose to smooth matters over with a talk, but he was interrupted by a lively hymn volunteered by the organ crowd. 
At the close of the services, Mr. Bills, having consulted with a lawyer, was advised to play the organ at all hazards, and he did so, and the meeting broke up in confusion. Well, that almost sounds funny, laughable, but it wouldn't have been laughable if you'd been a member of that church in Springfield, Missouri in 1887. You would have gone home heartbroken, having seen division come to the church that you loved. Why? Why did it come? I think the last sentence of the daily newspaper explains it well. It says he was advised to play the organ at all hazards, and he did so. And this happens in congregations in cities, communities all over the, the country at that time. One other one that I will uh, mention is kind of a famous quote among Restoration uh, scholars. It comes from Thorpe Springs, Texas. Thorpe Springs, at one time, there was a college there, a Christian college. It was very influential in the Restoration movement in that day. It's called Adran College. It was named after two preachers, Addison and Randolph Clark. Their father was Joseph Clark, who was a great pioneer preacher. Adran College was uh, the, uh, the, the most influential Christian school that we had at that time. In 1894, a revival was held at that school, and the man coming was known to be a preacher who favored the organ. Here's the quotation. On February 20th, 1894, the climax was reached. Before the service began, Joseph Clark, the father and pioneer, and his wife took their seats at the front of the auditorium. Their son, Addison, president of the college, arose to begin the service. Joseph Clark arose, walked toward the pulpit, took a paper out of his pocket, and presented it to his son. It was a petition. The petition was signed by the elder Clark and more than a hundred others who asked that the organ not be used on the grounds that it was not authorized by the New Testament. Addison Clark read the petition, confirmed briefly with his brother Randolph, and then announced that he had promised the students the organ could be used in the meeting and that he would not go back on his word. He turned to the organist and said, Play on, Miss Bertha. As the organ and the singing began, Joseph Clark arose with his wife and led the opposition out of the auditorium. He was a gray-bearded old man, 78 years old, walking with a cane. About 140 people followed the elderly Clark out of the building. Many of the remaining congregation wept. And from Thorpe Springs, division just spread throughout the state of Texas. That church divided that day. Later, the college divides. And out of Thorpe Springs, Adran College in Thorpe Springs, Texas, uh, Abilene Christian University out in Abilene, Texas Christian University, TCU and Fort Worth, both have roots that go back into that school. But it was divided that day over instrumental music. Now, Lines of division. Remember, we talked about missionary society, talked about the Civil War. Now we're talking about instrumental music. The Restoration Movement did divide, and for the most part, the progressives won the North, and 
most of the support of the Missionary Society and the instrumental music, most of them in the North, supported both of those. The story in the South was much different. The majority of the Southern churches had been committed to a more conservative understanding of the Restoration plea uh, before the war and before uh, these lines of division. And largely due to the influence of David Lipscomb, who was editor of the Gospel Advocate following Talbert Fanning, uh, we had more of a conservative viewpoint on everything, really, in the South. Three major religious bodies came out of the Restoration Movement. First one is the Christian Church, quotation marks, Disciples of Christ. That's what you'll usually see on their sign in front of their building. It's a very liberal wing. They, through the last 30, 40 years, have changed their attitude so much that they're really not even interested in Restoration Principle. It's not important to them. They don't claim to be a Restoration Church but they did come out of the Restoration Movement. Second uh, body is what we would refer to as the Independent or Conservative Christian Church. Uh, The Christian Church movement divided and got the Disciples of Christ, the more liberal wing, and this conservative Christian Church. And they are a more conservative group. They're really pretty strong in the North, but they, there are some throughout the South and Southwest. Uh, they are very, very close to the Churches of Christ. Basic difference is they use instrumental music in worship. That's the main difference. They still have the same attitude towards the Bible, restoration, elders, deacons, baptism, Lord's Supper. Very, very close to the Churches of Christ. Pretty conservative group. Now, the date that's usually given for the division is 1906. Why 1906? Because everything we've talked about is being happening here in the 1880s, 1890s. Because of local autonomy, when the division began to come, it was always on a local level. We said this on two or three things. We had no headquarters. We had no hierarchy to say, okay, this is it. We're dividing. It occurred in communities on a local level whenever the issues uh, would get real, real hot. The history books, though, use 1906. Why? Back in those days, the U.S. government conducted an official religious census every 10 years. We still have a census every 10 years, but they took a religious census. The last one that was taken was in 1936. But in 1906, gentleman by the name of S.N.D. North was the government census director, and he wrote a letter to David Lipscomb, because Lipscomb was so influential. He had heard about Lipscomb, and he wrote a letter stating he was confused, and he inquired about the Church of Christ in the South. He asked Lipscomb four questions. I bring this up because I think it kind of summarizes where things were. Here's North's four questions, the census director's four questions to Lipscomb. Number one, is there a group known as the Church of Christ, not identified with the disciples of Christ or the Baptist? Lipscomb's answer, yes, they are distinct and separate. Number two, is there any organization or central headquarters? Lipscomb's answer, they are purely congregational and independent. Number three, North asked this, 
How did it originate? Lipscomb's answer, he said, the aim was to unite all professed Christians free from human opinion. Then number four, the census director said, how is the best way to receive a list of the members? And Lipscomb's answer was, there is no list. Contact the congregations and ask them. That's why 1906 is used, because in 1906, for the first time, churches of Christ were listed in the religious census. But it's a divided movement by this time. It started out, if you remember Thomas Campbell in the Declaration and Address, we talked about way back in our discussion here. He had two principles. Number one was the unity of all believers. Number two, he said you achieve that unity by restoring patterns of the New Testament. Go back to the Bible. Though the goal was to unite all believers, the restoration movement fell short because many forgot the only way to achieve that goal was to honestly let the New Testament be the pattern. And in reality, many have abandoned the restoration plea, although uh, they don't really admit it. But like Dr. Pinkerton said in the very beginning, uh, I'm going to put the plea on the back burner and I'm going to go for my likes and my dislikes. And that's the sad, sad part of the restoration movement that we're sharing with you today. Been a lot of things since instrumental music, since Christian Missionary Society, since the Civil War. Been all kinds of fusses and fights that have come up. Um, But uh, this, from a historical standpoint, Jacob, is basically what happened in the restoration movement. Well, it's a very detailed explanation, and we appreciate very much everything that you're telling us. And as we've talked about throughout this whole series, the goal is to <clears throat> keep restoring, to always have the attitude and the desire to go back to the Bible. So last question for this series, uh, just some brief summarization. What do you think are some of the challenges uh, for today as we move forward? Well, there's all kinds of them, and basically, Jacob, it's just anything that pops up. We have to go back and look at Scripture and say, do we have an example of it? Do we have something? Can we find a book, chapter, and verse that helps us understand this? Because undoubtedly, change is inevitable. People Mm -hmm. change. Times change. They always have. They always will, and we cannot totally stop change. And a lot of changes have taken place in the restoration movement over the last 200 plus years. But the question has got to be, what can change and what must remain constant? What must remain uh, sacred? Because, you know, Malachi, back in the Old Testament, Malachi 3.6 says, for I, the Lord, do not change. And the Hebrew writer adds to that, says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And even with the establishment of the church, Acts chapter 2, verse 39, uh, Peter says, the promise is to you, the people standing there that day, your children, and to all that are far off. As us, we're a long way from Pentecost, but the same promise is there. 
And so I think we got to continue as we go through the restoration movement. You say, what are the items? Well, there are too many to list, really. Right. But we just have to realize that as we looked in the beginning here from Moses and Deuteronomy to the prophets of the Old Testament, writers of the New Testament, to our congregations today, we got to ask the question, what does the Holy Scripture say? And the church of every age must stand under the judgment of Holy Scriptures, ever striving to be what God would have it to be. But we realize we're going to always fall short of the goal, and so therefore the restoration movement is not something that ended. Mm-hmm. It's something that continues today. Nobody, though, let me say this, nobody is going to be very concerned about restoration, Jacob unless they are fairly conservative toward biblical authority. Mm -hmm. Because if there's no pattern, then there's nothing to restore. And that gets back to your story of, which is a true story of Dr. Pinkerton about when he admits way back when, in 1860, I believe it was, you said, no, there's no biblical authority for this, but it's just kind of something that we enjoy doing. And that mindset begins a dangerous mindset. Uh, that leads to a lot of different issues. And we see that still happening today. Sure. And if I can go one step further, I'll see times and hear people say, we've got together and we've studied and we've decided this is what we think God wants for the church. If you'll ask a question, can you give me a book, chapter, and verse? Glad you found that. Help me understand. They won't give you one. They won't give you one because it's based on emotion. There's nothing new under the sun. It continues to return. That's exactly right. Well, I sure do thank you for your time, and we thank you for your expertise and the great history. And if you've been with us through all of these episodes, we thank you for sticking with us, and we hope that you've heard something through this restoration series that has blessed you. And if you'd like to continue to discuss it further, as always, you can email me at jacob at pressandcrest.org and we will get an answer back to you. We hope that you have a great day. As always, keep your eyes on heaven, and we look forward to talking with you next time.